Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. On Friday, March 18th, I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, why the president of Mississippi's Economic Council believes child care access could unlock untapped talent in the state. Then, how oil drilling companies skirt U.S. regulations off the Gulf Coast. And a look at vaping in Mississippi schools. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's economy is at a crossroads as the state's labor force remains thin and federal COVID stimulus dollars begin to wash away. Some experts believe the key to expanding workforce participation lies in child care. Scott Waller's president and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council. He speaks with MPB's Kobe Vance. There's probably never been a lot of people think about the connection to the state's economy in terms of child care, whether it be just early early learning proponent or whether it's just the actual care of the children. It's very important in many aspects. In 2017, MEC worked with the U.S. Chamber after the U.S. Chamber released a report called Workforce of Today, Workforce of Tomorrow, and it really focused on that, that dual role of child care. Child care is important in terms of making sure the child is in a safe environment, making sure the child is, has the opportunity to learn, and making sure that there's a quality factors involved with that. But on the flip side of it, having that then gives the parent the assurance that they can put their child there, they'll be taken care of, they have an opportunity to learn, while they can be participating in the workforce. And I think that's why that, that workforce today, workforce tomorrow approach has to be our whole focus in this because... In Mississippi right now, we are still needing workers. We are still needing to develop a much larger, stronger, higher-quality workforce. And for us to do that, we have to think about all aspects of that, and that includes early education. I know we're still facing the coronavirus, and some businesses are still struggling to get their employees back. You know, What do you think um, child care opportunities could do for the workforce in Mississippi if those were expanded? Well, I, I think, number one, it gets gets more people back in the workforce. But, I mean, some of the numbers that in 2020, in February of 2020, just before corona, we released the report jointly with the U.S. Chamber that said Mississippi loses about 600 and 
$53 million every year. Okay, that's in, in either absences, people having to quit their job because of workforce, or just tax dollars that businesses are not producing as a result of this, this, this economic loss. So when you think about it from that perspective, and then you think about the impact of COVID added to that, they, they, had, they have since done a, a, a report, the same report for Arkansas, and I just was given the numbers a few minutes ago. Arkansas is showing somewhere in the neighborhood of about an $860 million loss as a result of it. Well, think about we're, we're very much population very close to the size of Arkansas, economy-wise very close to Arkansas. If you look at everything about it, so if we ran the new numbers today, something tells me that six that six thirty five number that we had earlier would be closer to that eight sixty number that we're see, that they've seen in Arkansas. So when you think about the impact of it, what it means, it's very important that we focus on this because there's a second part of this as well that I mentioned earlier, is that a lot of people because of childcare issues are not continuing their education, their post secondary education, or they don't have the ability to do workforce training because they don't have someone who can take care of their child while they're in that training program. And that training program is vital for them to get the skills necessary to to move into a higher-paying job, to to move into the opportunity to do better for themselves and their families. So all of these things work together in helping drive our economy, and it truly is, when it comes to education, it's a birth through, through life experience, adult learning. All of it matters, and really and truly, uh, early learning is, plays a big role in preparing students to be successful in K-12, in post-secondary, and in the workforce over time. So, I mean, it's it's a long-term investment that will pay off big, big dividends. What do you think are some of the biggest hurdles for this? Is it the, the financial burden it puts on parents, or is it, you know, having not physical locations to go to in their area? I think it's a combination of everything. I think it sometimes it's the cost puts a financial burden on parents. Sometimes it's availability puts a financial burden on it. And I think in, in many cases what we're trying to do is we're trying to build out a system that was developed here through our early learning collaboratives that's putting a system in place that didn't exist just, gosh, uh, what, 10-plus years ago? So, I mean, now we really are trying to think about how do we make all of this happen in a way that we're able to, one, make it affordable, two, make sure there's a quality educational component in in the child care community, and three, give those parents a chance to be able to be in the workforce so that they can continue to, to be successful. So if, if they're working in a job where they're having to pay all their earnings just to have the child taken care of, we're not accomplishing our goal. We've got to make sure we're getting them the training necessary to give them the ability to move into the higher-paying jobs that allow them to really be successful and at the same time make child care a less of a factor in their decision on whether they can or cannot be in the workforce. Scott Waller is president and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council. Coming up, how oil drilling companies skirt U.S. regulations off the Gulf Coast. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. 
This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Offshore drilling is a shrinking industry along the Gulf Coast. It's also an, an increasingly dangerous one. That's according to Sarah Sneath, who's an investigative reporter at the environmental nonprofit newsroom Floodlight. She tells Mississippi Edition producer Rob Lane about her latest story, which explores what happened on board the drill ship Globetrotter 2 during Hurricane Ida. It's pretty terrifying. I know. Personally, I, I live in New Orleans, and um, I was debating evacuating for this hurricane. And as it got more serious, I, I took it more seriously, and I left. But the people on this drill ship were not able to leave. You know, they, it requires a helicopter to evacuate them, or it needs to nav- the drill ship itself needs to navigate out of the way of the storm. And the ship owner, uh, Noble Drilling, and the, the company contracting the ship, Shell, did not decide to make that, you know, they didn't, make, they didn't make that decision quickly enough. And so the drill ship was left out there in the storm. And as I said, there were waves um, as tall as oak trees, you know, splashing up against the ship. And um, it, it threatened the ship to almost capsize. And the workers who were stuck on the ship were being tossed about. Um, they had uh, back injuries and some of them had traumatic brain injuries as a result of, um, of being left out there. And here's one incredible thing that you mentioned fairly early on. The Globetrotter is owned by a U.S. company and contracted, in this case, by a British company, but it sails under a Liberian flag. And this is not at all uncommon for deep water drilling ships. That's right. Um, yeah, I, I found that out because I got some data from the Coast Guard on offshore fatalities. And when I looked through um, these incidents, of them had happened on ships that were considered to be flags of convenience. So these drilled ships are flagged with other countries that have looser regulations for safety and environmental um, and and labor also. So they have a lower minimum wage. And also it can be difficult to sue. If, If you're injured on one of these ships, it can be difficult to sue because you might not know actually who the ship owner is um, because registering in some of these countries allows you to do so in a, in a way that's um, legally anonymous. So if you're a lawyer and you're trying to go after one of these uh, ships, you might have a really hard time figuring out who the owner is. And this also jumped out at me. The offshore workforce, you report, has shrunk 40% in recent years, but fatalities have increased. How is that even possible? It just seems counterintuitive that uh, that in any industry over you know over a period of years that it would become more dangerous as opposed to more safe to work in a given industry. Do, do you have any insight into what's responsible for those figures? Yeah, the thing I heard from um, offshore injury lawyers was that a lot of the accidents do happen because there are not enough people. So um, workers are having to do multiple jobs and they are, are being stretched to the limits. And that can result in injury. And do you know exactly how many people have been seriously injured or killed on these vessels in recent years? Yeah, in the story, I think I, I give a, um, I think around a 15-year period, and I say about 150 people were killed during that period. And those are the known fatalities that I was able to track. It's actually very difficult to figure out how many people are dying offshore because the federal agency tasked with safety and environmental enforcement is doing a really poor job of tracking it. Um, They don't count workers who 
are on their way out to an um, you know an oil site, such as the Seacorp Power accident that happened last April, where 13 people died. They won't be counting that and the number of offshore workers um, who died in, in 2021, um, and that's just because they weren't at the federal lease when they capsized. Are these ships drilling in American waters or in international waters, or I guess Mexican waters for that matter? There were, I think, a few, maybe a handful of the fatalities um, that we mapped that the, the that I got in the Coast Guard records that were in international waters, but most of them, aside from like maybe four, most of them were in U.S. waters. Um, and so that's what's really interesting about this because we have uh, a law called the Jones Act that requires ships that do business in U.S. waters to be U.S. flagged, but the Customs and Border Protection Agency has allowed exemptions to the oil industry to some of these service uh, uh, vessels and, and drill ships to be foreign flagged. So, you know, there's this loophole for, for the offshore oil industry. I want to explore that a little more deeply, the regulation piece. What can the U.S. government do? What, if anything, can state governments do? And is there certain things that the U.S. really can't do anything about in terms of these practices? Yeah, that's that's a complex question. I think on a policy standpoint, there um, there are some opportunities to require or to, to like get rid of these exemptions, which there was uh, uh, the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Agency. They did try to close this loophole at the very end of the Obama administration, but uh, when the Trump administration came into office, they basically like threw that proposed rulemaking out. Um, and there is a new, there is some new legislation that would also close this loophole of of allowing um, ships to be registered registered anonymously in, in other countries. So that could make it, I guess, easier for workers who are injured on these ships to to um, find the company and and get and be compensated. But I think like. Another question to ask is, you know, why why do we have to worry about, like, the compensation for people getting injured and dying? I think that, you know, hopefully we would be able to prevent these accidents from ever happening. So I think maybe looking at the safety regulations is another avenue, too, that we should be exploring. Your organization, Floodlight, I know, focuses primarily on environmental and climate change reporting. What is the climate change component to this? First off, <laughs> drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, like a continued exploration in the Gulf of Mexico, would result in, you know, more oil and gas being burned, which contributes to climate change. Um, and I think, like, another part of this, or what got me interested, is that a lot of Louisiana lawmakers, and I'm sure it's the same in, in Mississippi as well, will say that we need to continue drilling in the Gulf because of the jobs. And I just think it's pretty disingenuous to say that because of the huge drop in employment and in, in offshore. And that drop in employment isn't purely because of oil prices. A lot of it is because of automation. So, you know, they're, they're automating jobs and making it so that they have to use fewer workers. Um, and then you also see that these jobs that remain are dangerous and becoming more dangerous. So I just think it's pretty disingenuous to come back and say that jobs are the reason that we need to stop the transition to renewables. 
Sarah Sneath is an investigative reporter at Floodlight. Still ahead, a look at vaping in Mississippi schools. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. Vaping became popular in the mid-2010s and remains common among teenagers in Mississippi. That's according to Hancock County Superintendent of Schools, Teresa Marin. She tells us that in her district, the rate of disciplinary cases related to e-cigarette use is higher than ever. And the substances that are being vaped are causing some problems with the children Uh, Not only are they getting in trouble at school for it, of course, but it's causing some physical uh, concerns. Uh, We have had to call our our ambulance service in um, on a couple of occasions uh, because children start having these seizure-like body movements. It's not really a seizure, but it's causing them physical damage. And, you know, we're just really concerned. You know, drugs affect people differently, and, and one person may can get away with it, but the other person may not, and it may be... Uh, fatal. So we were just very proactive in trying to get word out to parents, taking a firm stand on how we're not going to tolerate it. And believe it or not, uh, in just a short turnaround, we have noticed a decline in, in what we're seeing on our campuses. You did tape a video message to parents, right? I did. And in the video, it was an informational video. Well, we do a video series every week anyway. Uh, but this particular one explained exactly what vaping is, what the substances that are being used for vaping, uh, and how they're different and what they need to look for. First of all, nobody should be vaping if they're under 21, so that in itself is a is a problem. But if they are vaping, you know, these are things that you need to, to be on the lookout for. This is what you need to know. This is the difference between this substance and that substance. And you know, spice is making a comeback through vaping um, as well, and that, that's, that's probably what I think they call it cake, and that's one of our biggest concerns right now that was causing the ambulances to have to be called. But just information so that they could be more informed, have more uh, uh, intentional conversations with their children, and hopefully curb this because it's a community problem. It's not a school problem. It's a community problem that the school's having to deal with. And so it's going to take the whole community getting on the same page uh, to make a difference. Have you been able to get students to tell you where they're getting them from? Yes, and uh, a lot of times it's from their homes. Really? Or from an older cousin or someone buying it for them. Mm-hmm. Because, and, and I'll tell you why. It's because the impression initially is that it's just flavored water. It's just a steam. It's just you know, to be cool, but in actuality, that's true, but that's not what we're seeing, and so if you're hitting on a vape that you think is just flavored water, or e-juice as they call it, it could have no nicotine, and it could just be that flavored water, but if you don't know where that substance came from, it may not be flavored water, it may be something that could kill you, and uh, so they're getting it from, you know, the people that they know, uh, and they're I don't want to say directly in their households, but, you know, 
the older cousin who's 21 who can get it from the store because you know some of this you can buy it at the store it's not now the the marijuana lace stuff uh the thc that's illegal illegal like nobody's allowed to have that but the other stuff that is like just like alcohol it's available to people over 21 then people older people are buying it and just giving it to them it's the same thing with cigarettes you know minors always have cigarettes because the older group would always buy it for them so that's where they're getting it from and of course you know i'm not going to lie there's probably some transactions going on at school but then those people got it from adults so you mentioned in your message that you're concerned about elementary school students following mm-hmm. the older students and doing this. You're finding this issue on the elementary level? Well, and not as, not very much, okay, but we have had a couple instances where the kids have had the devices. They were empty, but they had the devices. You know, children are going to mimic what they see, and it's not just the their older siblings that they're mimicking this from. It's also their parents, just like with cigarettes. Um, you know, if you have two parents are smoking in the home, there's a great possibility that those children are going to smoke because that's what they have seen as their role model. Um, so that was the concern in making parents in the elementary world aware is that children are going to going to model uh, are going to behave what's modeled to them. So, and you have to make sure that you keep these e-cigarettes as um, safely secured as you would any other substance that's only for children or only for people over 21 in your homes. And when you had students that passed out or whatever, were the medical people able to tell you anything about what was going on with them, why that happened? Well, it goes back to everybody's body processes chemicals differently. Um, You know, I know one situation was uh, what they call cake. um, And I know a, Another situation, I think, was a THC-laced incident. So we are able to determine the substance after uh, the narcotics uh, or the deputies can run tests on it. But what happens to one child who does it and why is is uh, not necessarily explained, can be explained why another child reacts differently other than everybody everybody's body responds differently to certain chemicals. Teresa Marin is superintendent of schools in Hancock County. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Stick around for a full morning of Mississippi Radio. Coming up at 9, it's the Gestalt Gardener. Then at 10, it's Next Stop Mississippi. And at 11, don't miss Southern Remedy. Find past installments of this and other Think Radio shows online at mpbonline.org. I'm Desiree Frazier. See you Monday at 8.30 for the next Mississippi Mississippi edition only on MPB Think Radio. Hope you have a good weekend.